Our scripture this morning comes from Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 11, and then 18 through 24. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending, after the Passover, to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Now, when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended upon the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man! Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to give God the glory. And when he was eaten by worms and breathed his last, but the word of God increased and multiplied. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. Good to see you on this holiday weekend. Thank you for making it, making a point to be here with us. Uh, just a reminder, I think David probably said this, but I'll say it too. Next week, we're back to two services. If you look around, it's a holiday uh, it's a holiday weekend, which means it's a lower attendance in the room. is probably as full as it, as it really can consistently be. So if you've noticed this summer, we've had larger crowds. And though it's hard in many ways to think for many of us about uh, having to go back to two services, which means we'll see one another less, uh, is absolutely necessary, we believe, for what God has called us to do in our city. So be praying for us as we continue to prepare for that. Uh, for the teenagers in the room, I know that's exciting to you because it means you have an hour later to sleep on Sunday mornings. Maybe it's just the teenagers in my house, but that's the way we feel about it. For others of you who really like the mornings and are ready to get up, uh, be here an, uh, 30 minutes earlier at 9 o'clock. Um, but we're, we're going back to that. We believe it's something that is good for our church. 
uh, bring somebody with you. Please bring somebody with you. That's, it's a jolt in the arm of being reminded uh, that we need to be bringing. We need to be building relationships with people and bringing them with us uh, or else the, the room's going to feel really, 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 really empty. Uh, so do that for us, okay? Uh, we continue this morning in our series, Walking Through the Book of Acts. You know, and this is really, really a remarkable tale, this whole story of Acts here. And this, this chapter, chapter 12, uh, in particular, I mean, you see some pretty fantastical things going on here. And so I thought it might be good to be reminded why this book, with all of these stories about the exploits of the early Christian movement, was written. Why do we have this book? What was the purpose with, for which Luke wrote it? Historians believe that it was written by Luke, who, who also wrote the gospel bearing that name. And he wrote, we're told at the beginning of Luke's gospel, uh, a two-volume set, both Luke and Acts, to a person of some apparent social status named Theophilus. He wrote it as an apology, as a defense of Christianity. So that this man, who was thinking about becoming a Christian, would know what he was getting himself into. And that's really the purpose of the Luke-Acts corpus. It's to make a compelling case for Christianity. So if, like Theophilus, you are in the process of making up your mind about becoming a Christian, Acts is a great place to start because it's meant to prepare you for the kinds of things you can expect to follow from that decision. Or if you've been a Christian for a long time, as many, I think many of you have, then it's a great place to be because it's a call to return home to the basis of the faith. That's really what the book is about. It's what it's there for. But we have to ask the question, what about this text? What can we learn from this text along those lines? And I think here's the lesson of this Acts 12 passage that we have this morning. And it's, and it's really simple. It's just this, that Christianity is a prideless religion. Christianity is a prideless religion. And that's because it's not religion at all. It's gospel. It's grace. And so if the heart of Christianity is grace, then, then there's no room for pride. There can be no pride. C.S. Lewis, he put it this way. He said, whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we're good, and above all, make us feel that we're better than somebody else, he said, I, I think we can make, be sure that we're being acted upon, not by God, but rather by the devil. You see, the fruit, the fruit of hell is pride. <clears throat> Excuse me. The music of heaven is humility and joy. And so, inside Christianity, there should be no pride. There should be no self-exaltation, no boasting, no smugness, no judgmentalism, no condescension. And yet, of course, if you've paid any attention, you know that there is. Pride gets smuggled back in somehow, and we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. But here's what I want you to see as we come to this text. What we learn is that the gospel is an assault on our pride. If you're a Christian, it's because there was a time in your life when you, you, some, God did something in you, and the result of that was it humbled you out of your pride. And that's what it means to be a Christian. It means literally to have an experience where you're humbled out of your pride. And it also helps us to understand our lives, this, this idea we're talking about. It gives us categories for understanding why our lives go the way they do sometimes. God is working, whatever he's doing in our lives, he's working to undo our pride. He's rooting out our pride. He's saving us by humbling us. And this is really what we see here in this passage in, in Acts chapter 12. And there are three things. And uh, there's alliteration this morning, so I expect revival to fall at some point in the service. Whenever that happens, you can be sure. 
God's Spirit is at work, but uh, you'll see we're going to look at three things, and it really is the three scenes, and there's a story that's being told. You know, there's a story that's really being told, and it really is the story of, of every single one of us and every single one of our lives, but you'll see first the pride and the boasting of this man Herod. Secondly, meeting with the power of the gospel, the supernatural power of God in the gospel. Uh, third, being fueled by the prayers of the church. So the pride of Herod, I told you. The power of the gospel and the prayers of the church. And we're going to talk about pride under all three of those categories. So let's first begin right here at the very beginning, chapter 12, verse 1. And look at this man, Herod the king, we're told. We're given the villain's name here. And the Herod mentioned in our passage is the grandson of Herod Antipas, who was empowered during Jesus' ministry. And here he is making trouble for the church. He's killed James, the brother of John. He has Peter arrested. And we know enough of his history from Josephus and other historians from that time to know that this man was motivated by pride. He was put into power by the Romans and, uh, and was expected to keep the peace in what had become a very unruly and hostile part of the empire. And so it was important to him uh, to be well thought of by those who had given him this power among the Roman power brokers. And, and, and so he, he's a very political figure. We get another little hint about the kind of man that he was in verse 2 when he says that he killed James. If you see there, he kills James. And then he sees, he notices that his killing James pleases the Jews. And, and so then that's what motivates him to then go arrest Peter and put him in jail. And so he's motivated by the desire to please and have people think he's a great ruler and those, those sorts of things. And then, of course, the home run is this scene at the very end of the chapter when uh, he puts on a show. And so as you read this, if you're, let me think, what the, if you're 40 and above, I guess you would say, I want you to think of, of Liberace. Okay? Remember Liberace coming in with the, with the robes and you have to kind of shield your eyes? If you're 40, I'm trying to think of 40 or below what, that, what the equivalent of that would be. And the only thing that I, kind of off the top of my head I can think of is the WWE where, where the wrestlers come out and the, you know what I'm talking about, the smoke machines and, the, and it's this big, you know, display of their might and their power or whatever the case might be. And it's exactly what Herod does. He's putting on a show here. Uh, verses 21 and 22, he puts on his royal robes and takes a seat upon his throne and delivers an oration and the people, the people shout, you see there, the voice of God and not a man. I mean, Herod, Herod is a vain man. He's a vain man because you see everything about that scene at the end is calculated to garner the attention and the admiration of the crowds. Josephus, uh, the famous Jewish historian, recorded the same event. He said, uh, that the clothes that Herod was wearing were made of a material that shone so bright in the morning sun that the crowds hailed him as a god because that's what he wanted. He wanted, and, that, and that's pride. I mean, we're told exactly what pride is here, and it's so helpful. If you look in verse 23, it's just this little phrase. If you want to know what the Bible means by pride, what, what Christianity means by this idea of pride, is verse 23, he did not give God the glory, Luke says. It's such a simple statement, but it's so important. A proud person, this is what we're going to talk about. A proud person like Herod, like me, like you, a proud person is a glory robber. The essence of pride is glory robbing God. And in the Bible, that word glory means weight. It means importance, significance, and these things. So 
So your glory, literally, your glory is the thing that is the most important thing in your life. It's the thing that carries the most weight to you. It's the center, you might say, of your life that everything else revolves around. It, or it's your, it's your why. doesn't matter what the what is. Your glory is the why behind the what. It's the thing that drives you, your deepest motivation and treasure. That's your glory. And, of course, the question then from the text is, whose glory are you seeking? In many ways, all of Christian theology can be, can be summed up in, in just asking that question. Whose glory are you seeking? Question one of the shorter catechism, you know, asks, what is the chief end of man? What's the why? What, what is the main purpose for why God created us and why we're here? And, of course, it's question number one in the catechism because it's question number one in all of Christianity. What is the chief end of man? What, why am I doing this? Why... Why is this happening? Why? 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 And the answer always, the answer always to that question is what? You know what? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So the answer always is to glorify God. No matter what, no matter who you are, that's your purpose. No matter what you're doing, that is, that is the, should be the end and goal of the thing that you're doing. That's why you've been made. That's the why behind every what of your life. But here, we have Herod refusing to give God the glory and wanting it for himself, and that is pride. Pride is glory robbing God of what belongs to him, wanting to take his place at the center, at the center of the universe. And so if your glory, if your glory is the thing that carries the most weight in your life, if it's the thing that gets most of your attention, you dream about it. Your mind just goes to it when you have a free moment, then, then here's what I want to say. If that's true, then what I mean by glory robbing God is that you, the main problem in your life is that you're thinking too much about yourself. You have ingrown eyeballs. You always have your eyes on you. We've said this so often in the past, haven't we? Pride isn't thinking too highly of yourself. It's thinking too much of yourself. It's thinking of yourself too much. It's, being a, a, it's fastening your attention on yourself too much. It's being turned in on yourself the why of your life becomes you. And so an example, uh, and it's always good for me to, you know, me to lead out on these things. Uh, if I'm around you, if I'm around you and you're upset and I can tell, which I'm pretty dense and a lot of times I can't tell, but if I can tell, if you're being so obvious that I have been, I'm, I'm there and I know, okay, this person's really upset. You want to know something about me. Uh, if, if that's true, if I'm around you and you're upset, I can tell, then I, then I have this weird thing in my life that, I, that there's something in me that's going to, I have to fight through that I automatically think you must be upset with me. Does anybody else deal with that? Right? It's hard for me to be around somebody that's upset, and it's obvious they're upset, and not think they must be upset with me. I can't, and here's what's gross about that is, I can't even get outside of myself long enough to think about you and ask you what's wrong. I immediately start to worry about myself in the moment. They're mad. They must be mad. What did I do? And then I go through the registry. Did I, what, oh, oh, it's probably this. No, well, maybe, no, it could be, you know, and I do that. It's, it's just, it's pretty gross. It's pretty gross. I just assume it is me because too much of my world begins and ends with me. If I hear a criticism about the church... If I hear criticism about the church, it feels like a criticism of me because, of course, it's all about me. And this is how pride gets smuggled even into Christianity. So to grow spiritually, you have to work on you. See, this is how it works. I mean, you have to work on you, right? That's what what sanctification is. So to grow spiritually, you do this. You work on you. But here's, 
here's what happens. In order to work on you, you have to think about you. And once you start thinking about you, you're in trouble. C.S. Lewis in Screwtape Letters has Screwtape, who's the senior demon, <clears throat> excuse me, counseling Wormtail, his young apprentice, and he says this. Listen to this. This is so great. He says, all virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he has them. Our enemy wants to turn the man's attention away from self to him and to the man's neighbor. Even his sins, even of his sins, the enemy does not want him to think too much. Once they are repented, the sooner the man turns his attention outward away from them, the better the enemy is pleased. And so, he has Wormwood. He says to Wormwood, he says, here's what you got to do. If you want to defeat this man, Wormwood's trying to, trying to kind of grab this man and bring him to hell with him. And he says, if you want to get that done, he says, get them, all you got to do is get him thinking about himself. Either get, get him rehearsing all of the good things that he's done or cause him to be haunted by all, the, by all his shortcomings and failures because either way he's thinking about himself. And that's, that's what we mean. Glory robbing God is always having your eyes on you. Always taking your inner temperature and thinking about yourself. So pride, pride's thinking too much about yourself, being the center of your own world. But here's the other thing, and here's what you see in prepared particularly. It's also putting yourself on display. It's wanting to be the center of everyone else's world too, wanting everyone else's eyes to be on you, wanting everyone else. Pride is wanting everyone else to be thinking about you as much as you're thinking about you. These, this is the Pharisees and the religious leaders in Jesus' day, you remember, whose whole lives were calculated to draw attention to themselves. These guys, they were something. They wore, they wore clothes with little bells on the tassels so that everyone would know when they were coming. They blew trumpets. They would go to the place where you would give your alms, and they would bring people that they hired to blow trumpets, and they would blow the trumpets. And, of course, if you hear a trumpet, what are you going to do? You look and see what's going on, and then they would put their gift in, in the offering plate. They prayed loudly in the marketplaces so that everyone could hear their voices because they wanted all of the eyes uh, on them. Do you ever do anything like that? Not you. Never. I did, uh, I did chapel at my kid's school the other day, and... Um, and I was, I, I was just laboring over what I was going to say. And I realized that my struggle was because I wanted those kids to think I was great. I so wanted that lunchroom full of children to walk away from being with me, thinking about me. And not God. That's pride. That's glory robbing him. What about you? What about you? What's it feel like to put in a hard day's work on a project and then nobody even notice? What's it feel like to be part of a group and nobody even knows you're there? We, we are glory hungry. That's what the Bible says. And so we're constantly grasping and trying to grab glory from other people, from one another. And even from God himself, Herod, Herod, verse 23, did not give God the glory. And that's you thinking about you more than him and wanting other people to be thinking about you more than him, wanting God's place at the center of the universe. Peter Kreef says there are two kinds of people, the proud 
who think they're humble and the humble who know they're proud. Do you know you're proud? Lewis again. Lewis said, do you know you're proud? Good. Good. Keep Keep knocking on the head, he said, but don't be too worried about it. Don't get too worried about it, for as long as you know you're proud, you're safe from the worst form of pride. Do you know you're proud? See, that's what we see. We see Herod's pride. But here's the second thing. If that's what pride is, then I want you to see what God's response to it is. And we see this in Acts 12 as well. If pride is having too much, your eyes too much on you, then the solution, of course, is to have your attention turned away from yourself to God. And so that's what I'm trying to do, and I think it's exactly what God does and works to do here in in our chapter. So go back to the scene at the end of the chapter and look what happens. Uh, Let's pick it back up. Verse 22, the people are shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. So Herod is finally getting what he wants. He's got, he's, he's rigged this whole thing to get the attention of the crowd because he wants everybody's eyes on him. And here everybody turns and they get, they begin to give glory to him. And then verse 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Again, we have historical record of this. This is a historical event, and that's the reason for the historical placeholders in verses 20 and 21 there, about all the details leading up to this, because this actually happened. This happened in Caesarea as Herod was celebrating games in honor of the emperor in August of 44 AD. We know all of that. Josephus recorded that he was there, and at the very moment, as, as Herod is being regaled with praise, he is there on the dice, and he's seized with a violent internal pain they immediately carry him into his palace, and he's dead within four days. Is that, I mean, that, that's, that's shaking, isn't it? The Bible says everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. God works against pride wherever he finds it. Mary sings, he scatters the proud and brings down the mighty from their thrones. And this is an act of judgment but it's also an act of salvation. Let me explain. It is an act of judgment in that God, we need to know something about God here. God will not let anyone rob him of his glory. And it's good for him to do that. He will act for the sake of his glory as we see him doing here with Herod. He will vindicate his great name wherever it's being profaned. He will dethrone the mighty where he must to prove his supremacy. And he does this to judge. But here's what I want you to see. He also does this to save. It is an act of salvation in that it is the very means by which he brings us to faith. So in order to become a Christian, you have to be humbled out of your pride. I've said that. God has no other way of doing this. I mean, think about it this way. A proud person is a person who's always looking down their nose at everyone else. And that's why it's impossible for a proud person to know God. Because, of course, if you spend all of your time looking down, then where are you not looking? Then you can't see what's above you. And that's the problem. Faith is looking up. Conversion is the time in your life when, for whatever reason, you stop looking down or you stop looking around or you stop looking within and you start looking up to God for help, for life, for love, for peace, for joy, for righteousness, for salvation. And so one of the things we learn here is that the gospel wounds before it heals. We read in Galatians just this past week about the offense of the cross, that the first step of faith is to be offended by the cross. If you're going to become a Christian, you have to work through being offended first. To have your pride wounded. Because the cross says, the cross of Jesus Christ says, you can't save yourself. You can't be good enough. There's nothing you can do. And that hurts. It hurts the part of us inside that is determined that we're going to make life happen on our own. But it's the only way to have that happen in your life. It's the only way to humility. And without humility, there's no heaven. 
And so to save you, what God must do first is he must take away your strength. He must take away your righteousness. And so Christian is a person who's been humbled to say, nothing in my hands I bring, right? Simply to thy cross I cling. And so if you're a Christian, that's you. And what that means is, is if you're a Christian, you're a miracle. Do you know that? If you're a Christian, it's because of God's supernatural intervention in your life. Not your smarts, not your strength, not your goodness. It's God's grace. And so there's no room for pride. And so the only way, the only way that it's possible for any of us to be proud is to forget that we're a miracle. We're an absolute miracle. Salvation is by grace or it's not at all. And if by grace, then only with humility. Herod was a vain man. But God is intent to work in the lives of his people in such a way to produce this kind of humility. And this explains, by the way, why Herod was allowed to, to ravage and rage against the church to begin with. This evil man. I mean, why? Do you read this and wonder, why did God not stop to act before he killed James? Before Peter was thrown into prison, right? I mean, why, why wait until all that stuff's done? But notice verse 1 of chapter 12, how the passage begins about that time, we're told. Well, what time is that? Well, see, so you've got to go back to chapter 11. And in chapter 11, you'll see it's the time of the greatest expansion. It's, this is on the heels of the greatest triumph of the early Christian movement to date. So the gospel is going forward powerfully. And then we read about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church and Saul. James, the brother of John, killed with a sword and arrested Peter and so forth. Now, what's the lesson here? I think it's that real Christianity is always both trial and triumph. And so if you're sailing through life and nothing is ever wrong, or if you're slugging through life and nothing is ever right, then your emotional life is out of touch with reality because life is always messy. It's full of frustration, pain, real sadness and loss and struggle. Listen, Christianity affirms all of that. It isn't shy about how life really works. But, but what Christianity says is, is we live in this reality of deep, deep brokenness, but also redemption. Trial and triumph. And that's really what this text is about. James is killed. Peter is thrown into prison. The church is thrown into chaos. Yet despite it all, we're told God's work triumphs. But only on the other side of the trial. See, so no matter... So no matter, to, to you I would say this morning, no matter what painful thing you're having to go through right now, no matter how dark the valley of the shadow of death might be that you're passing through, no matter how dark it might become, no matter how overwhelming the odds, the lesson of this text is the gospel will triumph. It might be slow. It might be unexpected. But it is inevitable. Look here at the beginning of chapter 12. This is, this is, this is, the, whole, this is the whole thing right here. At the beginning of chapter 12, you have Herod ravaging the church, but by the end, he's being ravaged by worms, and the gospel is increasing and multiplying. And that's the point. God's work, in and through you, will triumph. You can be sure of that. But listen, but not without the trial. Not without the loss. Not without... Not apart from the struggle, not without the pain. Why? Because without the trial, we'd never look up. The Apostle Paul experienced something like this. I mean, li- listen, we've got to make sense of this. I was thinking about this so much this past week. The Apostle Paul said that there were things in his life that were so painful to him 
that, the, that the, uh, the image he used, he said it was like a thorn in the flesh. And over and over again, he asked God to take these painful things away. And over and over again, God said, what? No. Okay. Now, that is not the prosperity gospel, okay, for those of you who have been in the church for a while. That's not. That's, that's just not. If you, I mean, what, what that teaching says, if you ask God and he says no, well, then you did something wrong. You didn't have enough faith or something. Paul says, I asked God and he said no. And it was for a very specific purpose. He said Three times I asked him, and three times he told me no, and this was to keep me from becoming conceited, he said. He said it was to keep me weak, not strong. It was to keep me humble, not proud. It was to keep me in need and looking to God for his, for his grace and his strength. I'm telling you, that's, that's different. That's something different there. Why, why would Paul, why would God want Paul to be weak? I mean, Paul says, God, he worked in my life in such a way to keep me this way. Why would, why would God do that? And the answer is because it's weakness that is the place of true strength. It is weakness that unleashes supernatural power. As long as you're relying on yourself, you, you, you're, you can't exceed the limits of your strength. And even for the, most, the strongest among us, that, that's, that's not good news. But when your strength is gone, when your strength is gone and you look to God in faith, you get his limitless strength, and, and you see in the passage the kind of thing that means. Here's Peter, look, locked away in prison. We're told a number of different details. He's behind three different doors. He's handcuffed to a soldier on each side of him with a, with a uh, the text is written in such a way to show you that there's more soldiers there than need to be there. So they're on, this is like red alert. Homeland Security is called in red alert, okay? Everybody is really, really you know, on alert. There's soldiers everywhere. I mean, this is the kind of prison break that even Michael Schofield could not even engineer, right? That's a pop culture reference. Prison break, the show. Yet, yet listen, an angel walks right in and walks right back out with Peter, no problem. Do you see what Luke's doing? He's saying Christianity Christianity is supernatural. Christianity is supernaturalism. There's no way around this. There's no other explanation. Look at verse 7. Peter's chains fell off his hands. The gates, verse 10, the gates opened of their own accord. They didn't even have to pick the locks. I mean, everything is written here. The details aren't really important. What's important is what, is what we're, we're being shown, and that is that this is a miracle. We shouldn't try to explain it away. We should just stand in awe of it and, and, and learn the lesson, and the lesson is in saving us God works to make us weak so that in our weakness we can experience his strength. I mean, and there's only one way. There's only one way for the gospel to go forward in your life, in your family, in our city. Only one way the gospel goes forward, and that's supernaturally. And so if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, you're a miracle. Conversion is supernatural. There's a supernatural power involved. And in Acts, when the gospel goes forward everywhere, here in Acts 12 and beyond... It goes forward supernaturally with miracles and voices from heaven and prison escapes and sudden deaths that all signal God's powerful intervention to accomplish his purposes. Now, this is not a sermon on the extent to which we should be experiencing these kinds of things in our day and time. Maybe, maybe we'll do that someday. Or you can call me and we can talk about that. But for today, for today, all I want you to think about is this, just this. Every single one of us in the room, we, we all need God to intervene with supernatural power. In some way, in some way, if you're not here, 
If, if you're not there, let me say, if you're not there, then can I just be your friend and tell you you're on your way there? And you know how I know. You know how I know that's true. I know it because God will not have it any other way because he does not share his glory with any other. Do you see what Peter says here? God acts for Peter in such a way, verse 11, that Peter says, I know it was the Lord. I have no other explanation. This was God. God did this. And I, and I want to tell you, that, that's what the Lord wants. He, want to works in such a way to bring, he wants to work in your life in such a way to bring you to a place where the only, the only thing you can do is raise your hands and say, I know it was the Lord. And so if pride is the enemy, and if God hates it and opposes it wherever he finds it, so that he works to humble us and make us weak, then the way the gospel go forward, goes forward in and through us is not through our gifts, not through our strengths, our smarts, our wealth, our resources, none of those things. If Christianity is necessarily supernatural, which is, I think, what the text teaches, and if we are dependent at every turn upon God's powerful intervention, if the health of our marriages, the good of our children is dependent upon this, if salvation for those we love is dependent upon this, if our success in business is dependent upon this, then there is one thing, one thing the text leaves us with that we must become proficient at, and that is the discipline of prayer. So the prayers of the saints. Now I admit to you, I admit to you that this seems so obvious and so anticlimactic that I, that I wanted to go another way here at the end of the sermon because I, I, I most times want you to walk away thinking about me too. It's a confession. But here's the thing, the text won't let me. You know, we all know we should pray more, don't we? But we don't. We charge out into life in our own strength. And even when the bottom falls out, our most natural impulse is to call a strategy meeting and to come up with a plan, but not the early Christians. And it was the secret to their power. Peter, look at verse 5. Peter is arrested. And how do they respond? What do they do? We're told Peter is arrested. An earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. This is not the first time we've seen this. This happens over and over again in Acts. But we, we don't pray because we think our power and resources are enough. That's the simple truth. But, as I, but if, as I've just said, the gospel goes forward supernaturally, then the solutions to, I would say, most of the problems that we are facing, you know, where they're beyond us. And that leaves us with prayer. Uh, the, the problem we have with prayer, I think, is that uh, it has become so domesticated. Prayer is... As John Piper has said, a wartime walkie-talkie, not an intercom to call down for more comforts in the den. But for the early Christians, prayer was a form of waging war. Peter, their leader, their pastor, was arrested and imprisoned, and they didn't panic. They didn't press. They didn't come up with a, with a breakout plan. They prayed because, I think, they knew that what needed to be done, God had to do, and they believed that he was willing to do it. You see... See, you can go about your life relying on your own strength and resources and get quite a bit done, but there's only one way, only one way to experience supernatural power, and that's to pray. You can grow a church through technique, but that's not the same thing as growing a church through revival. And Acts is the story of the church in revival, and they had revival because they prayed. And so let me just ask these two questions, and let's come to the Lord's table this morning. Let me ask you first, do you pray? Do you pray? Do you want to gauge how much pride there is in your life? Do you pray? Proud people don't pray. They don't, they don't need to. Let me ask you, do you do your life through prayer? 
Paul Miller's book, uh, our friend Paul Miller and Bob Allen, who's here, who's the director of Praying Life Ministries. Paul Miller's book, the title is very specific. He said it's a praying life. Do you do life through prayer? If you're a parent, are you, do, are you parenting through prayer? If you're, if you're an executive, are you leading through prayer? If you're a coach, are you coaching through prayer? I mean, there are two ways to go about your life. You can, you can be a person who does or you can be a person who prays. Doing and praying, there are two different ways of trying to get things done in your life. And I think what this text tells us is that the person, it seems counterintuitive, but the person who goes through life with less doing and more praying is the one that actually experiences the power of God. Uh, one of my favorite stories that I would recommend to you is to read any autobiography or biography that you can get your hands on about George Mueller. George Mueller was a, uh, an English uh, pastor years ago who... Um, who just began to be burdened by all the children that were orphaned uh, that he that he that he you know saw and uh, started orphanages for those children and by the time at the end of his life he had cared for tens of thousands of orphans and had dozens of orphan houses had raised I saw one figure had raised over a modern equivalency of a billion dollars uh, to fund all those projects and he never not once asked a single person for money he just prayed. My favorite story is uh, there, one morning, the headmistress of one of the houses came to him and said, uh, the children are dressed for school, but there's nothing for us to eat. And uh, Mueller said, gather the children and let's go into the, to the dining hall and let's pray. And they went into the dining hall and prayed. And about the time they said amen, there came a knock on the door. And a baker was at the door and said, Mr. Mueller, God kept me up all night last night uh, and uh, was burdened for your ministry. And since I was up, I figured I would bake some bread and bring it to you for breakfast. And he fed the orphans the bread. And then, of course, as children are wont to do, they said, but we're thirsty. And so he had, said, well, let's pray. I mean, it's a true story, documented. And so they prayed, Lord, we need some, something to drink. And about the time they finished, knock on the door. And the milkman's milk cart had broken down out in front of the orphanage. And he knew the milk would spoil before he could get it to where it was going. And so he said, you might as well have it and give it to your orphans. And he did this for 40 years. Doing and praying. Are you doing life through prayer? Prayer is a discipline, but I'm not concerned about the discipline. That's for another time. To have God's power, you have to admit that you have none. And that's what I'm talking about. Prayer is a posture of humility and honesty about your weakness and your need. And at the same time, confidence in God's grace and power. So is that, is that the way you're doing life? Anne Lamott who I love, she says you can reduce praying down to three words. And so if you want to know, if you want to know the degree to which this has really taken root in your life, just ask yourself this question. How often do you say these three words? She says three words of prayer are, wow, thanks, and help. How often do you say wow? How often do you say thanks? How often do you say help? Are you praying do you pray? Are you doing life through prayer? But then the second thing, and then I'm done. Do you, not only do you pray, but do you have the faith, do you have the courage to pray prayers big enough that if the answers were to come, they would surprise you? It's funny. The funny part of the story in Acts 12, we didn't read it because just for time, but the church, we're told, starts to pray, verse 5. And God answered their prayers. Peter's supernaturally freed from prison. And what happens in the story is he shows up where uh, the church is meeting together. They're praying and Peter shows up and he knocks on the door and they won't let him in because they don't believe it's him. They think it's an angel. Now, isn't that funny? We laugh at that. But 
They, there they are praying, and God answers their prayers, but the prayers are so outlandish that when, when he does answer, they have a hard time believing it. And so I just was challenged, am I praying prayers like that? Am I praying, and am I attempting things that if God were to do them, I would, I would just be amazed? God wants us to pray like that. You know why? Because he loves, he loves to come through for us in our weakness and to show himself to be strong because he wants his glory. And he loves when we pray things that only he can do, that can only be explained by his supernatural intervention in our lives. He loves when we pray prayers like that. I was thinking of Isaiah 41. Listen to what the Lord says in Isaiah 41. He says, when the poor and needy seek water and there is none. I wonder, are you thirsty and you can't find any water? That's the door. See, that, 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 that may feel like the doorstep of despair. I'm here to tell you, if you're thirsty and you've looked around and there's no water to be found, that is not the doorstep to desperation. That is the doorstep to a really powerful work of God in your life. He says, if when the poor and the needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched and thirst, listen, I, the Lord, will answer them. I will not forsake them. I will open rivers in the deserts. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry ground springs of water. Have you ever been to the desert? Are there pools in the desert? This is something only God can do. Listen, I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. Do those trees grow in the desert? No. This is, God is saying, I'm going to do something that can only be explained by my supernatural power. I will do these things, and then listen to verse 20. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress. Now, there's cypress trees in Lake Eloise, but I've never seen one in the desert. The plain and the pine together, verse 20, that they may see and know and may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this. That's what he wants. And so let's pray. That we become people that pray prayers like that, can we? Father, in our pride, we pray small prayers. That's the irony. That our pride leads us to pray small prayers. And so would you come and would you, would you in these last moments of our service, as we gather around this meal and this table, would you come and would you just d demolish our pride, smash it to pieces for your great name. Oh, where we have lifted ourselves up like Herod and, and wanted all eyes upon us, and we've robbed you of your glory. Would you forgive us, Lord? What a treacherous thing for us to ever do, and yet it is the very essence of our sin. It's what we're always doing all the time uh, on our own without your help, and so would you please forgive us and continue to work to produce in us the supernatural fruit of your Holy Spirit, which is humility and love, and in doing so, would you turn us into people so full of good fruit and good works and good prayers that we would glorify and honor your name, that the city we live in would turn and would see and would glorify you because that is what we want. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So that's our mission, to take to the world uh, the love and grace that Jesus has shown to us. And so as you go, uh, your confidence uh, is that uh, you're not going alone. Matthew 28 says that he promises to the end of the ages that he will go with us as he sends us. And so as he sends us today, uh, know, that he, know that he goes with you. And so enjoy the rest of your uh, holiday weekend with the, the knowledge of that. And um, reach out in faith and hold on to the promise of this benediction, uh, that his face is turned towards you.
because of the work of Jesus on your, on your behalf. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.